Good morning, everybody. And we get to open our Bibles together to the book in the Old Testament called Haggai or Haggai, depending on how Jewish or Hebrew you want to sound. Impress your fellow classmates at your next uh, get-together. A lot of names in today's lesson, and we'll just kind of work through those. And I promise I'll butcher them, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that now. But don't worry, I'm from the southern kingdom the southern kingdom, and we have a unique way of pronouncing things. Just like Mark's from Lubbock, and that's always his go-to when he says something interesting, I'm from the southern kingdom, not Judah, uh, but Florida. (laughs) Deep south, right? The deep south. So the book of Habakkuk, the minor prophets, we just have a couple more in this series, and we're through the minor prophets. And then we'll be launching into an exciting summer series, I expect, on how to study the Bible. And it's going to be a great series. I'm looking forward to it. It's got to be a book because we need something to hand new Christians and old Christians alike, not age, duration, uh, as they begin to look into God's Word. So I'm very excited about that book that will follow the series, of course. And you know you're the guinea pigs of this whole thing, right? Because everything Mark publishes, he preaches to you first. And then you get to give some feedback to, makes it better. And then what comes out for the rest of the world to see uh, always walks through here first. That's very exciting and fun to watch. So today we're in Haggai, we'll take him off the shelf, we'll open the book, and it's on page 743 in your Bible, if you have the same Bible that I have. Uh, I'm going to give you some snippets throughout these two chapters, it's a, it's a short book, and by the way, you remember, minor doesn't mean uh, someone in a mine, a minor doesn't mean uh, underage, uh, minor doesn't mean of less importance. Remember that the Bible is a library of sorts, and uh, if you've never read the Bible chronologically, I recommend that you do. It's a fascinating experience. It's wonderful to see the what we might call the grand meta narrative of Scripture in the chronological order. It's not grouped that way between the covers of your Bible. Uh, it's grouped according to genres. So we have the the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. We have history. We have poetry. We have writings. We have the New Testament, of course. Uh, They're grouped according to writings. If you come to the Linear Theological Library, and by the way, our director is here today. Dr. Capes is with us always. Uh, We are uh, not in the library organized by date. It's organized by topic or genre in some cases. So you'll have A through Z in just about every area of the library, or you'll have year this through that in just about every area. In the Bible, the minor prophets are grouped because uh, of what they do, what they accomplish, And typically, they're just smaller books, not small in significance. And you'll see that in today's book as well as all of these. But we go to Haggai, two chapters. If you found that in your Bible, I'm going to first walk us into the context and spend a little bit of time there so we can get an idea of what's happening uh, in this part of the world, this time in the history of the Bible. We'll get the context. We'll look at a few themes that emerge from that contextual consideration. And of course, before we go, we'll take a look at some theme or some points for home, some things to think about, and, and hopefully today, a few things perhaps to do. So I'm going to get this first verse on the screen. I'll read it so you can see it, but I'm going to keep reading, and I'm afraid to push any buttons up here, so, I, so it's okay. I'm just going to read the next few verses to you, all right? And you can follow along. It won't be on the screen, but maybe you've pulled it up on your phone or, or opened your Bible to find it. Here we go. Uh, in the second year of Darius the king. Now, I know what you're thinking. You already pronounced the name wrong. It's Darius. It's Darius in Lubbock and in central Florida. Probably it's Darius. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, Haggai, the prophet. 
to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, I went and practiced those names. I, I got a Bible software to tell me how to pronounce those names. It just sounded too funny. I just can't do it. For example, they want me to say Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Say that with me. Zerubbabel. Very good. You just kind of got Zerubbabel. You got that? Zerubbabel. Say it with me. Zerubbabel. The next one is Shiatiel. Say that with me. Shiatiel. Now, again, in the southern kingdom, we say Shiatiel, you know. But it's, it's probably, probably Shiatiel, something like that. Of course, Judah's easy. Joshua's easy. Jehozadak isn't too bad. And high priest, I got that part. We're doing good. But let me keep reading for you and just get a little bit more of this context in front of us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not come. It's not time. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much. And harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So you're getting a sense in these first few verses of the context of Haggai's writing. And if you're paying attention last week, and if you're paying attention now, you will find yourself in a bit of a time warp. Because we aren't where we were last week. We have moved forward in time between the pages of two. We are forward now in the time warp. Just quick review. Uh, the Assyrian Empire swept in, took out the northern kingdom. And then uh, sometime later, uh, the, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar the king, came in and swept out the southern kingdom. Took all of Judah into captivity to where? To Babylon. And there they stayed for a period of about a hundred years in exile. That's called the exile. There were Jewish people taken captive. The temple was torn to bits. The land of, Is, of, of Judah was completely destroyed. It was just in ruins, a ruinous state and condition for a hundred years. While the upper class, the, the, the academic class, the priestly class, the people of Judah, they're gone. They're in, they're in exile. But after about a hundred years or so, the Persian Empire rolls into town and they take out the Babylonians. So we have three kingdoms who've taken out both the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, of Israel and of Judah. The Persian Empire hits and Cyrus, or Cyrus the king, says to the Jews who have been held in exile and captivity in Babylon for a hundred years, you can go home now. You can go home. Not all did. Some grew comfortable in Babylon and stayed. But those that did made the 900 or so mile trek back to Israel, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. And they began there to resettle, to resettle. So we can get our attention now back to Judah and in specifics to the promised land. They're back. Now there are a few things that jump out at us at this point in time. First of all, we want to keep in mind this is some 118 years after the exile. So they were gone for about 100 and they've been back for about 18 years. By the way, you might slide Ezra in to that period from the return until now. The first couple of years or so when there is the instruction to rebuild 
there's the instruction there to build the house of the Lord. There's some opposition. Things fall out of order. And we have this now 16-year period, 18 since the return, 16 since any progress was made. Now, their houses, as you heard in the text, have been rebuilt. They've got homes. They've got paneled homes. They're doing okay. They've got gardens. They've got crops and fields. They've got cars and jacuzzis. I'm kidding. They don't have either of those. They, but they're doing okay. They're, they're living their lives. It's been 18 years. They've been back a long time. I think we've been in Texas almost 18 years. That's a long time. They've been back. But still there is a general sense of dissatisfaction among the people of God in the holy land, in the promised land. Because while they are living in the promised land, they are not experiencing the promises of God in the promised land. You hear the dissatisfaction. You, you harvest, uh, you sow, but your harvest is, is weak. It's little, it's small. And by the way, this is written, uh, we can get specific with the calendar because of the very specific names and dates and days that Haggai provides, this is about August to December, August, December of about 820 BC. So this is the harvest time. And after the initial harvest has come in, now there's this general dissatisfaction. There's this unmet expectation. There's this frustration that we are living in the land of promise, but the promises are not coming our way. We're working hard. We're doing all we can. We're getting our hand to the plow. We're putting the seed in the ground. We're paying attention and the harvest comes and there just is so little of it. And the clothes and, and the food and, and the drink, we're just never satisfied. We're not full. It's not enough. There's this general sense of discontent or dissatisfaction it leads us to ask the question in context here, what's the problem? What's going on here? If we look into the book, in those two chapters, we've read enough of the introduction to get an idea of what's going on. Now let's start pulling out some of these themes that might help us to answer the question. Why living in the promised land is the land not fulfilling its promise? What's going on? What's the problem here? Let's start with this one. This theme really emerges right out of the scriptures, right out of the first few verses, doesn't it? Here it is. God speaks. God speaks. Now, in context, we would say God spoke because you hear that over and over, right? Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It's in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It's in verse 3. The word of the Lord. It's in verse 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It's in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And that's not all. It continues throughout the two chapters of this book. What's the point? God speaks. So we're 118 years from the exile which was the punishment of God or the judgment of God for their unfaithfulness. So when God said, well, I'll let you have it your way, and that's the way they had it. Now they're back 18 years. They're living in the land of promise. They're in God's country. And in the midst of their dissatisfaction and discontent, in the midst of their concern, in the midst of their lack of sufficiency, God speaks. That is such an important theme. God speaks. And I want to be careful that we say here, this is not a letter that contains Haggai's opinion or even his strong religious convictions. That's not what we have when we have the word of a prophet. What we have in the words of a prophet is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Which really ought to get our attention and cause us to pay very close attention 
Thus says the Lord God, the God of hosts, the Almighty. God speaks. This is God's word being communicated here. We might want to pay attention to what God says. I'll never forget in my second ministry assignment, Beverly and I were members of First Baptist Daytona Beach. We went away to seminary, spent six years in New Orleans as pastor of New Zion Baptist Church, came back to serve under the man who was our pastor as layman in the church and, and, and working there at First Baptist. We came back to serve on his staff, so I was his associate pastor. And in the first week, he buzzed my phone, my office, and said, hey, come, come into my office, I want to talk to you about a few things. So I hopped up immediately. And by, by the way, Bobby Welch is a Green Beret, Special Forces, Bronze Star, Vietnam War hero, command general type, CEO leader. You know what I mean? Man's man, tough guy. So when Brother Bobby, we called him, buzzed, I went straight down the hall, opened the door, strutted right in, sat right down at the chair in front of his desk. He was working on something, and he looked up, and he looked at me like that, and then he said, did you not bring a pad and pen? I said, uh, no, sir. He said, you might want to go get one, because you trust your memory a whole lot better than I trust your memory. I got up, I went right back down the hall, back to my office, grabbed a yellow legal pad, grabbed a pen, and straight back down in his office, and I never went down that hall again without a yellow legal pad and something to write with. Uh, The reason, of course, is because uh, both he and I came to understand that if he was going to have something to say, I might want to listen carefully and take notes so that whatever I was instructed to do got done. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes we trust our ears and our minds better, perhaps more than we should. Especially when the first few words are, thus saith the Lord. Or in our more modern vernacular, when someone says, open your Bibles. Turn to the book of Habakkuk or Haggai, Matthew, John. Let's see what God's word says says, boy, uh, that might be a time to hit pause, push back, stop and think, hold on, God is about to speak. That's the theme we see in Haggai. God speaks. We we read about it in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. It's the breath of God, the Word of God. The communication of God, the revelation of God, the instructions of God, the commandments of God, the promises of God, they're of God. So you have a wonderful Bible teacher week in and week out in Mark Lanier. But if he were standing here, he would say, "Uh, Pastor David, can I just say one thing right here? And I would say, absolutely. And he would say, please tell them. That my purpose in teaching is not to communicate Mark's will or Mark's opinion or Mark's strong convictions. If he or I or Pastor Jarrett or any other Bible teacher or Bible expositor or Bible commenter you ever bother to sit and listen to for even a second says anything to you except God said, it's not worth your time to listen. But if it is what God said, You might want to pay close attention and listen carefully 
And I see some of you writing some things down now, and I think that's wonderful. And those of you that appear to be texting your grandchildren or something like that at this moment, I know you're taking notes on the phone. I've been at times uh, felt necessary. I take notes on my phone, then I can send it into my files right from my phone, see? And so uh, at times in church, I see someone looking at me with disdain. You know, some dear sister or brother of the Pharisee stripe. And I sometimes... I've done this. Truthfully, I've done this. I'll take my phone and I'll hold the door and I'll go, did he say, is that what he said? And then they go kind of sheepishly like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I should have been taking notes too, instead of wondering who you were texting or what you were reading online. So God speaks. That's an important theme, really important for us to identify. Here's a second theme. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. I tried all kinds of ways to say that in a catchier way, but It was hard because it was so obvious in the text. Did you hear it in chapter 1, verse 5? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. What has God said? God speaks. What does he say? Well, verse 5, he says, consider your ways. Says it again in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. What did God say? He said, consider your ways. So I thought about that. Maybe that's take a little time for self-analysis or do some self-evaluation or look around or, or, or look within. And that's a possible way to think about this. After all, James says, uh, looking into scriptures like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So there's a sense in which when we look into God's word, when we lean in and listen to God's word, we're really looking at ourselves in a sense when God has spoken. You remember how it happened for Isaiah in the temple when he heard from the Lord, right? The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I'm a lost one. I I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So in this very powerful, awe-inspiring, incredible moment of seeing God like he'd never been seen before in a sense for Isaiah for sure, what does Isaiah see next? He sees himself. Because in the brilliance of the light of God, he's forced to look at himself and all those dark corners are suddenly lit up and he sees, oh me, oh my, whoa, I'm undone here. I'm coming apart. Because I've heard the voice of God and I've seen him in his glory. And I know how holy and pure and wonderful he is. And how can I help but not look at my own darkness and and, and those places within my soul, heart, life, practices, walk, patterns, habits, ways, as Haggai says. Consider your ways. It's a theme and it's a strong theme. And if we consider it here, it might help us if they did in Haggai's day, and I'm happy to say they did, uh, to sort of diagnose or self-diagnose the problem we mentioned early, that in the land of promise, the promises are pretty weak. They don't really seem to be coming in. Remember, 118 years since the exile, 18 years since the return, houses have been rebuilt, but this general sense of dissatisfaction, things just aren't working out like we'd hoped, like we'd planned, like we'd dreamed, like our grandparents told us they would if we could just get back to Judah. What's the problem? I suppose you could point a finger at God and say, what's your problem? 
But when we see God for who he is and we hear what God has to say, the very next question is, is the problem might be me. And in fact, it is. Look in this uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. There it is again. Why? Why this dissatisfaction? Why the lack of contentment? Why the shortcomings on the promises in the promised land? Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Problem solved. <laughs> That's the problem, and now the problem is solved. It's not that difficult. You built your own house. You take care of your own needs. You're putting together your own kingdom. You're taking care of your own priorities. What about me? So what we see then, looking into this mirror which mirrors ourselves, our soul, our way, as it were, what we discover is there's a bit of a case of misplaced priorities in Judah 18 years after their return from exile, 16 years after they'd made any progress at all, really, on the rebuilding of the temple. A long time has passed. And they've taken care of themselves, but they haven't taken care of their faith as a priority or their relationship to God. They hadn't taken care of his priorities for their lives, for their ways, misplaced priorities. Sometimes when we take a good look at ourselves in light of God's word, we see, hey, you know what? I might need a little checkup from the neck up here. I'm, I might need a little change of heart. I, I, I might need to reevaluate my priorities. Because that's certainly where we find Judah at this time and place. When Haggai writes, he says, hey, let me tell you what God is saying. You got your priorities out of whack. You say, well, hang on. All they did was build houses, right? Are houses sinful in and of themselves? Well, of course not. You can build a house. You can have a house. But in the conversation with guarding our priorities, the question is, is do we have a house or does our house have us? Right? Can I have a car? Is a car okay? I mean, I, I need to get around, right? I mean, Say we build this temple someday, i got to get there, right? So can I have a car? Well, of course you can have a car. It's not about having a car, as long as your car doesn't have you, right? I could do this all day. Let's try investments. Can we have investments? Can we save? Can we invest? Can we build wealth? Well, of course. There's nothing inherently wrong or sinful with that. You can have investments as long as your investments don't have you. This is about Priorities. It's not about what we have, it's about what has us. The real question for us is, and we're asking a, a New Testament question now of an Old Testament theme, really. Where are you with Jesus? And where is he on your list of priorities? So every time we go to the Word of God, and we hear the voice of God, and God speaks. And by the way, God still speaks. I'll come back to that in a moment. I don't want you to think that God spoke, and that's the end of it. God still speaks. And when God speaks to us, it's a good opportunity to hold up that mirror, mirrors our soul and mirrors our values and mirrors our priorities and mirrors the working out of those priorities and strategy and ask ourselves the question, is Jesus on the throne? As you know, we're all quick to say Jesus is Lord of all, amen? Say that with me. Jesus is Lord of all. You don't have any problem saying that. You know where the problem is, don't we? <laughs> Living it. <laughs> 
Living, living lordship is the challenge. Proclaiming lordship, well, I mean, the revelation of God's truth in the light of the Holy Spirit, I agree. Jesus is Lord, but hold that mirror up and examine the me of me that maybe only me knows. And I've got some hard questions to ask and answer about my priorities. Is Jesus the Lord of all, of my life, of my heart, of my home, of my job, of my relationships, of my habits? of my passions and desires, of my attitudes, of my actions, of my habits, is Jesus Lord. I can assure us all of this. When God speaks, it's an invitation, an opportunity to consider ourselves, to look into our hearts and line up then with what we hear God say and what we see in ourselves. It's a bit of an adjustment called obedience. It's the third theme. Let's take a look at it. Go and do. So God speaks... We consider our ways and our response, go and do. Go and do. Uh, By the way, uh, Haggai, the prophet, is spurring them on to action. This isn't just a change of mind or of attitude. This is action. This is obedience in action. This is getting out there and doing something. It's not sitting around in a Bible study group and talking about wonderful things. It's saying amen, getting up and going out and doing wonderful things. There is a difference, right? By the way, I don't know if you watched the news this week. Did you see uh, ex-governor, former governor of Colorado joined the road crew in California? California. He went out and repaired some uh, potholes in the street in his neighborhood because he waited weeks and couldn't get a response. And he got tired of driving over these potholes. So he got his buddies and they went out there and they repaired the potholes. And the local government got mad at him and said he had messed up their work. But you got to appreciate action, right? I mean, you can sit home and complain about it. You can drive through and, 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 and knock your front end out of whack or punctured tire, or, or you can get a bucket and some, some blacktop, some asphalt, and you can go out there and, and repair it. You know, sometimes you just got to do something. Hello? Don't just sit there. Oh, that was weak. I'm going to give you another chance. Don't just sit there. Do something. Now, don't do the wrong thing. Don't just do anything. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. I think it's what we see in the text. Go and do. Look at verse 8. We're still in 1, chapter 1. Go up. That's that's an action word, by the way. Do you know what a verb is? A verb. What's a verb? I've never taught English and barely passed because I'm from the southern kingdom. It's okay. Go is an action word. It's a do thing. (laughs) It's not a think thing. It's not a feel thing. It's a do thing. Go is an action It's what you do in response to the revelation of God's word when it speaks into your life and you've considered your ways and it occurs to you, oh, I need to go and do something. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Now, what house are we talking about? They'd already been up to the hills and brought their own wood. They'd already built their own houses and paneled the walls. It's time for them to build God's house, the temple. And by the way, you know this scene if you know much about Bible history or current affairs. The 
Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. It's what essentially remains of the original foundation of Solomon's temple. It's, in Judaism, the holiest place on earth. It's closest to the Shekinah glory of God, the Holy of Holies, which have been up and a bit over. And people still, this to this very, I've been there. I, I have prayed there. I prayed for you there. I put my hands on that wall uh, just symbolically to be as close to God as I could be. By the way, stop, full stop, parentheses here. Uh, I'm just as close here because he came to me, amen? He came to you. So that, that's the end of that conversation. But you understand the point. In, in Haggai's day, uh, this was the place. Uh, this, or rather on top of that, had stood some 118 or so years ago, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God on earth. The, the symbolic representation of God dwelling amongst his people. The center of their culture and of their lives and certainly of their religion. It's where they came to meet with God. Now you know, I know, we all know, God doesn't need a house to live in. He's not homeless. But God commanded that a structure be built for our sakes, for their sakes, to understand what it is like for God, who is everywhere, to be somewhere. Sort of like Jesus in the Incarnation. Is not God everywhere, though God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but suddenly in Bethlehem, in a manger, Jesus was born, and it's God, suddenly, who is everywhere, but now somewhere. So the temple, in a sense, is the presence of God on earth and his dwelling amongst his people. Sure, it was a a good deal of symbolism in that, but we understand what that means. In this case, it's not that God needs a building to live in physically, but he says, again to verse 8, that I may take pleasure in it. So their obedience and their obedient response of action and building this house for the Lord, which were their instructions, gives God pleasure. So you want to make God happy? You want to give God pleasure? Do what God says to do. It takes pleasure in obedience. And that I may be glorified. So the building of this house, the establishment again of this temple, this place of worship, the center of community and life and religion and relationship with God, glorifies God. Which is our job. So build the house. Go ahead. We've talked about this. I left you instructions. I told you exactly what to do. You're back now. You've got all you need to do it. Go and do it. Go and do it. Because this is a covenant people, and the temple is the symbol of that covenant and of God dwelling amongst his people. And by the way, after all they'd been through, you would think they had learned. Put God first. Prioritize his presence and his power. Honor him, glory him, glorify him, please him. Keep him in the center of your life. Keep him in the center of your community. Keep him in the center of all things. Because we learned our lessons. We've been through it. We've been through it with Assyria. We've been through it with Babylon. We've been through it. We know all about it. And, hey, let's make God a priority. And yet 18 years later, precious little has been done to build the house of the Lord, to please the Lord, to bring honor and glory to the Lord through their obedience. Good news. The people, verse 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. As the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. 
respected, honored, reverenced. They obeyed. Case solved. Things aren't great. We expected better. We're frustrated and we're disappointed. And we're just in generally dissatisfied with the condition of the promised land. Now, we've done all we can do for ourselves. What else is there? Oh, put God first. Put Jesus on the throne. Let Jesus be the Lord of your life. And watch as things began to turn. And so they worked. They came and they worked on the house, verse 14 tells us. The house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They worked. They got after it. They put their gloves on and they got busy and they began to do the work. Which, by the way, is always the right thing to do when God speaks. is to hear and listen and understand and then just go and do it. It's just, just go and do it. Go and do it. I mean, after all, obviously after 18 years, the house of the Lord won't build itself. It's not going to just mysteriously and magically, poof, there it is. I mean, could God have done that? I suppose he could speak. He created all that is with the spoken word. Could God have said, hey, let there be a temple in Jerusalem again? And nobody would have had to lift a finger. You say, boy, that would have been great. God could sure have made it easy on the people. Huh? If he'd have just done it himself, it would have been so much easier for the people. <laughs> you know the problem with that, right? Uh, there's this whole process of, of character building, of becoming. I mean, what's really happening here is not the building of a house to symbolically represent the presence of God among his people. It's what God is doing in the hearts of God's people to rebuild that house and to put it in its proper place and to set those right priorities. It's the journey. It's the pain and the discomfort and the challenges of following after God. Could God have done it for them? Sure. And he would have deprived them of himself in the doing of it. I don't know, preacher story from way back, you might email me later and say, well, that's not biologically accurate, but just bear with me. If you snip the cocoon of a butterfly... Before he's ready to fly, he will die. Because there's something about the struggle. There's something about working at it. And I don't know all the biology of what's involved and what fluids have to exchange and what strength has to be gained. I don't know, but I I get the idea from that old story that, that there are some shortcuts you shouldn't take because it's the process and it's the journey of doing and becoming that is the point. It's the point. And building the temple in the house of the Lord wasn't just for God's sake, it was for the people of God's sake. So that when it was built, they'd been a full participant and the journey and the benefits, which means, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this, sorry if it hurts your feelings, breaks your heart, but tiny steps with God, comfortable steps with God, easy steps with God, obedience that costs nothing for God. Don't find those very often in the Bible. (laughs) What you find are big challenges, tough tests. What you find are difficult circumstances and situations. 
You say, I'd follow the Lord if he would only ask me to walk one inch at a time. Well, sometimes God calls you to take a whole step, maybe even stride on out there in obedience and faith. I can assure you of this. If you think you've heard from the Lord, and essentially what you think you've heard from the Lord sounds like stay right where you are, be comfortable, complacency's fine, I'm not asking much of you, I never will. You probably aren't hearing from the Lord. Because whenever God speaks, it will immediately take us to a point, a crisis of belief, as Henry Blackaby said, and a decision time that we're going to have to step into sometimes difficult situations and struggles and challenges out of our comfort zone to get where God wants us to go. That's just the reality of it. And by the way, I mentioned Henry Blackaby. Did, did any of you ever go through the study experiencing God? I guess it's more than 30 years ago now, right? I, probably as I look back over my life in ministry, now 30, what, four, three years? I, I think it's the one thing I could say made the greatest single most impact on my life in ministry, experiencing God, Henry Blackaby. Went through it with our staff at New Zion Baptist Church in Louisiana. Went through it then with our deacons. We took our Sunday school leaders through it. Took the whole church through it. Completely changed our way of thinking, our paradigm about what it is to experience God and to be obedient to God, to follow God, to know God, to hear from God, to do God's will. Uh, If you've never done it, it's old. I'm telling you, it's old. It's still good. If you've never done it, take a look. Just a quick review, by the way. Uh, God is always working around us, always. Jesus said, the Father is working and I'm working. God is always working. He's working in pursuit of a relationship with us, a love relationship with us, a personal relationship, and he invites us into that relationship, and he speaks. He speaks through the Bible. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through the church. And anytime God speaks, he leads us to a crisis of belief. That's that, I'm out of my comfort zone. God's called me to be uncomfortable here. What am I going to do? Well, the result of that moment is an adjustment. We have to adjust. Here are some phrases that stand out to me. God's revelation is his invitation to join him in his work. God does not speak for the point and purpose of speaking. He speaks for your response. Here's another one that stands out to me. Do you remember this one? You cannot stay where you are and go with God. Sorry. (laughs) God's not going to leave you where you've been all these years so that you can be comfortable and happy and maintain the status quo and keep things just like, no, God is on the move, man. He's going to take you out of your comfort zone, and that's the only way you're going to follow him is if you follow him out of your comfort zone. Here's another one. I love this one. Our obedience to God is the key to our experience with God. You know, not the people in Judah in Haggai's day were not living in the experience because they were not walking in the obedience that is tied to experience. By the way, uh, we don't have time to go verse by verse through the whole book, even though it's only two chapters, but trust me on this one. God renews some promises to the people that if they will answer and obey, if they will trust and obey, if they will obey and follow, if they will do what he's instructed them to do, the promises will begin to flow. The promises will begin to flow. So two more quick themes, and then we'll wrap up. God speaks, consider your ways, go and do. And here's the encouraging part, because when you get that uncomfortable feeling like, oh, no, I'm about to step off into the great unknown, don't worry, you're not stepping alone. God will be with you. Chapter 1, verse 3, did you hear it? The messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. 
It's also in chapter 2, verse 4. Be strong. I know you're uncomfortable. I know it's difficult. I know it's challenging. I know you'd rather stay where you are. Keep doing what you've always done. Be strong, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. He's with you. You remember that story about a father and son, and it's just a day in the country, and there's a stream that flows through the family's farm, and dad says, hey, son, I want to give you a a little chore to do. I've been thinking about what we might do here along the river. I want you to help me. I, I want you to move all of these large stones in the riverbed. And son says, okay, that sounds good. And he begins to move one after another, first the smaller ones and then the next one and then the next one. And, and finally he comes to this one big boulder right in the very center of the stream. And he's working and he's pushing and he's pulling and he's doing everything he can with all of his might. And this stone will not budge. He goes and gets another stone and tries to leverage it some way. He gets a board and tries to leverage a limb. He does this, he does that, and he can't do it. And finally he looks at his dad and says, Dad, I just can't do it. This one's too big. And dad says, uh, son, have you tried everything? He said, oh, yeah, I've tried everything. He says, have you used all that you have uh, as resources? You, you've done everything you need. He said, dad, I'm telling you, I've done everything I can do. And then dad says, yeah, there's one thing you haven't done. You haven't asked me to help. You know what happened next. Father and son together moved the biggest boulder. The son could not move except for the fact dad was present. And dad brought a little power to the conversation. Remember, Jesus said, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another, a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. God is with you. When you have that sense of dread that what God's about to ask you to do is step into the great unknown, just know you will not step out there alone. God will go with you. And God will be there for you in your moment of need to give you everything you need in the moment to do everything God has asked you to do. Can I just... God will never, ever assign you anything that he will not also give you everything you need to be successful. He fully resources the vision and the mission. So you can trust him. And you can step out in faith and you can be obedient even when it's uncomfortable because you know God is with you. And lastly, you know God is faithful. He's faithful. Listen to verse 7. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Had it been filled with glory before? Yes. Had the glory been removed, departed, Ichabod? Yes. But what God is promising to do now is finish what he started. I will fill this house with glory. You build the house, I will dwell in the house in your midst, and you will see my glory. Look what he says in verse 9 of chapter 2. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. This is not a backup plan. This is not a fallback. God says we're moving forward. The latter will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What is God saying? I'm going to finish this, folks. We're going to do what we started out doing. In spite of your unfaithfulness, I'm faithful. In spite of your inability, I have all ability. 
Chapter 2, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You, who? Well, specifically, someone in the line of David. That messianic thread through history gives us Jesus, our Savior and peacemaker. You, the people of God, even these Judeans who had been so unfaithful to God that God allowed them to be carried off into slavery, into Babylon, into a pagan land for a hundred years. To them, God is renewing a promise and reestablishing his purpose that says, I will make you a signet ring. You will be a symbol of me. You will be a reflection of me. You will be the image of me. You will be the message of me to the nations. What's that sound like? Sounds like God's love. You know why you don't want to give up on your kids? Because they're your kids. Because you love them. You know, sounds to me like God's mercy and forgiveness because they needed lots of both. It sounds like God's persistent faithfulness. He He just doesn't give up on his people. Thank God. It sounds like God's sovereignty, that God is somehow going to orchestrate his plans and purposes and their fulfillment in spite of everything that's happened. All the opposition, all the disagreement, all the grumbling, all the rebellion, all the idolatry, all the sin and separation, all the judgment, all the judgment, in spite, God just weaves it together in in an incredible way to bring about his purposes. Sounds like God's sovereignty and it sounds like God's ability that God's going to get it done and you can count on that. You can take that to the bank. God can. We ought to just put that in our instant memory bank. As soon as it ever comes out of our mouth, I can't, the words God can should come to mind. God can. God can do it. And if he's called you to do it, he certainly will empower you to get it done. He's not just calling you and I to work. He's calling us to work together to accomplish His plan and purposes. Many of you know my Philippians 1 6 story, and I'm sure of this, Paul writes, that He who began a good work in you, He, I like to add, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because in this marathon of life, you may be somewhere along midpoint, or you may have made it already to mile 21, but suddenly cramping has set in, and you have dehydrated and your legs are screaming for mercy and you just don't know if you can take another step but you've got five more miles to go and you say I can't do it you're at a moment of decision you're at a crisis of faith you've got to decide there and then you run in this race because God's called you to it have you forgotten that because God called you to this race he'll equip you and give you everything you need that he's with you in the moment and he can give you what you need to finish what he started. He's faithful to finish what he started in you. And he will get you to the finish line. You say, yeah, I believe that in time and eternity when Jesus returns and we all go to heaven. But today is another story. What do I do today, Fleming? What do I do today? I got two words for you. Trust and obey. For there's no other way 
to be happy, joyful, filled in Jesus. How? But to trust and obey. All right, it's time to go. So we've got a couple quick points for home. Don't worry, they're quick and they're all on you. Point number one. What did God say to you today? What did he put on your to-do list? What adjustment? What change of priorities? What different way of thinking? What different way of living? What has God said? Number two. I'm sorry, it's not that profound and difficult to comprehend. I'm sorry this isn't taking you to the very depths of theological wonderment. I'm sorry that sometimes the truth is just so practical. Go and do it. By the way, if you watched the Masters last week, did you enjoy watching Sam Bennett from Texas? The low amateur? And especially if you got a chance to hear the story. His father, who was diagnosed with early uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, died just in 2020. Last words he ever spoke to his son, who was an up-and-coming golfer at the time, were these. Don't wait to do something, pops. And when he said it, Sam asked his mom to help him to get his dad to, to be able to write that down for him. He wanted something of the written word from his father. He wanted something to hang on to. So it took a while because they had to actually help him remember how to write his father. So that's why you can see it's written in such a way that a, a gentleman in the late stages of Alzheimer was able to write down the last words he ever spoke to his son on earth. He died just some time later. But Sam took that writing and had it tattooed on his arm. Now, I'm not advocating going out and getting tattooed. That's your business. But wouldn't it be really something to sort of have tattooed on our heart and on our mind. When God speaks, don't wait to do something. God. And don't worry, the Lord will be with you. The Lord will be with you. That's why you can say this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me because God is with me. God is with me. And Father, we ask as you have spoken through your word, that we have heard your word. And we can't do everything, but I sure pray, Lord, we heard something and we're willing to do something in the right thing. Whether it's an adjustment of our priorities, a reordering of our lives, a different way that will bring us into alignment with your will for us. And we thank you that while it makes us uncomfortable to obey, you have promised your reward of your presence and of your power and of significance and success on this mission and, and along this road. And we trust you and we thank you and we ask you to help us from this moment forward to trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.